Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so um, thrilled at this time of year, springtime, when the sun is shining, uh, leaves are budding, we plant gardens, some of us, uh, we get outside more, and Lord, we see everywhere the fingerprints of your goodness, your power, your might. And we thank you, Lord, for your faithful changing of the seasons as well. We thank you for your creation, Lord, and the, the fact that we are part of your creation as human creatures. Lord, you have spoken to us. You have given us your word. You have given us your revelation in words that we can understand. And now as we open that and see your glory there, we pray, Lord, that we would be humble under your word, that we would not only listen, but also be doers of your word and act upon uh, what you tell us and what you reveal to us here. Father, we ask your help this morning in every way as we open your word, as we discuss uh, matters of our existence in this world. We pray your Holy Spirit to come and be our guide, our help, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In these weeks, we have been attempting to clarify how the Christian worldview really differs so dramatically from the new worldview of ideological social justice. We've been trying to name and to describe many of the characteristics of this new corrosive religion called ideological social justice. And we're doing that in the prayerful, sincere hope that none of us as believers would fall prey to this corrosive new religion, or if we have already fallen prey to it, that we would be convinced to flee away from it and also to gain the courage to speak out against it. Well, this morning, I want to make a further observation concerning this new godless and acidic religion called ideological social justice, and that is this, that it both overreaches and it underestimates. It both overreaches and it underestimates, or we might say that ideological social justice overestimates its own abilities while it grossly misreads or it underestimates the actual condition of our world. And what I mean is this, and, and here I owe a debt to Joshua Mitchell in his latest book as Mitchell puts it, you and I and the next guy, we live within two economies. We live within two economies. The first of these economies that we as human beings live in day by day, this economy can be described with the words balanced books. This is the economy that we are familiar with in day-to-day -day life. For example, when we go to the grocery store, we choose our grocery items, and then we go to the cashier and we make payment for those groceries. And the payment is received then 
by the cashier. So this first economy that we live in day by day is the basic economy of payments made and payments received, or fair recompense that is given for debts owed. Fair recompense given for debts owed. The ledger books all balanced. We generally like to have balanced books in our human interactions. But there is a second economy in which we also live as human beings on this earth, and this is what we can call the invisible spiritual economy. This second economy is the economy that, as Mitchell says, quote, it involves something deeper and more impenetrable. It involves something deeper and more impenetrable. This second economy is the one, listen, that only God understands fully. We do, we do not have full access to it in this lifetime. This second economy is the one in which payment doesn't quite balance out in our lifetime. This second economy is the one where God fully understands the balance sheet, but we do not. Well, describing what the balance sheet looks like in this second economy, Mitchell says, quote, the innocent suffer and we do not know why. Good people die and bad people live. Close quote. There is this second economy that we live in, friends, where the ledger sheet seems imbalanced and we get perplexed by it in this life. It bothers us. We cannot control it. However, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know by reading Scripture that our good God has full control over this second economy and he has full wisdom as he superintends this second economy. And we as believers, we trust him in all of it, knowing that he is good. Now, where ideological social justice overreaches, where it overestimates its own abilities is in this, that it demands that ledger books within the second economy be balanced immediately, right now. And that the balancing be done by human beings. And with that demand in play, it oversteps into God's territory, haughtily asserting 
that it will do the ledger balancing without God. Injustices in the world, imbalanced outcomes in the world, we will sort them out, all of them, we will sort them out now on our own. This is the claim of the ideologues of ideological social justice. Overreach. Overestimation of human capabilities. And, as we said, ideological social justice also underestimates, listen, it underestimates the broken condition of this world. Let's you and I meditate for a while in the scriptures on the true state of affairs in this world. Let's get sober here together. Last Sunday, we were in Genesis chapter 3, and we were grappling with just a part of Adam and Eve's descent into mutiny against God. Well, what follows Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis chapter 4, where the effects of sin begin to manifest in most horrific ways. In Genesis chapter 4, we have, of course, the very tragic and the very sad story of Cain and Abel. Cain violently kills his brother Abel. Now, what's worth noting is that of the first four human beings mentioned in Scripture, so Adam, Eve, and their sons Cain and Abel, of the four of them, three are described explicitly as sinning. Adam and Eve both transgress against God by eating the fruit, and Cain murders his brother. But Abel, the fourth individual, is innocent, at least at the level of the narrative. And yet, it's Abel the innocent. Abel, whose offering was regarded by the Lord, He is the one who gets murdered. There's something unjust about that in our reckoning. It seems absurd to us that righteous Abel is the one who ends up murdered. We think something, something is imbalanced here. The world seems really off kilter. Where's the fairness? Well, travel forward with me from the time of Abel's murder, many centuries later, to the writing of another biblical book called Ecclesiastes. The main speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes is this figure named Kohelet. Listen carefully to a basic observation about human life on earth. A basic observation about human life on earth 
that Kohelet makes in Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is talking about our reality in this world, our lived reality on the post-Genesis 3 earth. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.16, listen to his observation, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That verse of Scripture presents some hard, unsavory truth about our experience in a fallen world. Let's take just a minute and read it again to yourself. Read that verse again to yourself. So often within this world, within the hive of humanity, where we would expect justice and righteousness, where we would expect justice and righteousness, we get wickedness. Like Abel being murdered. The ledger sheet seems broken. It seems imbalanced. There is this dissonance in our reality, in our world. And then again in Ecclesiastes 7.15, Kohelet says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man, a righteous man, who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Exhibit A of this verse, righteous Abel dies at the hand of wicked Cain. Abel lies dead in a pool of blood on the ground while wicked Cain gets to go on living. A righteous man perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The balance sheet in this life often seems so out of whack, does it not? And then finally, Ecclesiastes 8.14, Kohelet observes, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Now listen carefully. What's really interesting is that in Hebrew... The name Abel in Genesis is Hevel. Whenever Abel's name appears in the text in Genesis, it's that Hebrew word 
hevel. And that exact same word, hevel, is perhaps the key word in the entire book of Ecclesiastes, where it is translated into English as something like vanity or meaninglessness or vapor or absurdity. And the word hevel, Abel, appears twice in the verse that we just read in Ecclesiastes 8.14. Kohelet says there is a hevel, an Abel, an absurdity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people like Abel to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked like Cain, And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is hevel, able, absurdity. What Kohelet in Ecclesiastes is putting his finger on are these confounding dissonances that we all live with in this life these perplexing imbalances, these uncomfortable realities that are part of our everyday. And he's not the only writer in Scripture to put his finger on this. Asaph in Psalm 73 does the same thing when he observes the same sort of imbalance. Asaph observes the wicked prospering the wicked being at ease and increasing in riches. And Job, in Job 21, he wonders out loud. He says, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Jeremiah also, in Jeremiah 12, he raises the question, why does the way of the wicked prosper Why do all who are treacherous thrive? The balance sheet often seems imbalanced in this life, and we don't like it. We can't figure it. I think perhaps one of the finest meditations on this fact of the confounding imbalance that we see and that we experience in this life has been given to us by the great 4th and 5th century North African bishop, Augustine, in book 20, chapter 2 of his magnificent City of God. So let me take time to read you this profound paragraph from Augustine where he's describing this mystery of imbalance in our earthly reality. Augustine says this, quote, We cannot know what secret decree of God's justice makes this good man poor and that bad man rich. Why this man whose Immoral life should cause him, in our estimation, to be torn with grief, 
is, in point of fact, quite happy. Why that man whose praiseworthy life should bring him joy is, in fact, sad of soul. Why this innocent party leaves the courtroom not just unavenged, but actually condemned, unfairly treated by a corrupt judge or overwhelmed by lying testimony, while his guilty opponent not merely gets off unpunished, but goes gloating over his vindication. Here we have an irreligious man in excellent health, there a holy man wasting away to a shadow with disease. Here are some young men, robbers by profession, in superb physical fettle, there some mere babies, unable to harm anyone even in speech, afflicted with various kinds of implacable disease. A very much needed man is swept off by an untimely death, while another man, who we think should not even have been born, survives him and lives a long life. One man, loaded with crimes, is lifted to honors, while another, whose life is beyond reproach, lives under a cloud of suspicion, and so of innumerable other examples. Close quote. The fact is, friends, that there is much about the world that we inhabit that is quite simply beyond our human ability to comprehend and to sort out. There are these things that sit outside of our reckoning and will remain so in this life. There is much in our experience in this life that simply escapes whatever tidy systems that we might like to employ. The sobering question is, have you and I sat ourselves down and humbly come to grips with our limitations? as human creatures? And do we trust in God, trust in God in all of the unknowns? The world is broken in a way that we as human beings will not be able to fix nor do we tend to really comprehend the extent of the brokenness. At the moment of Adam and Eve's transgression against God, the whole creation 
went out of joint. A devastation entered in. A kind of poisonous infection and damage spread into God's good creation. Righteous Abel was murdered. Men and women jostle for power over one another. Hiroshima and Chernobyl and Auschwitz and the Rwandan genocide and the Bosnian War and Stalin's starving millions in the Ukraine have all happened within the last hundred years. Within the last hundred years. Racism has wrought horrific things historically, and racism still happens. Bribes happen in the place where justice should happen. We put locks on our doors. We build sleek technologies that end up separating us from one another and pitting us against one another. There is utter confusion in all matters of sex. And there are constant instances of all manner of sexual deviance and misconduct. Government officials lie to get elected. Theft happens here, there, and everywhere. There are still 4,000 active nuclear warheads on our planet. There were two motorists road raging and yelling obscenities at each other in front of my neighborhood pharmacy the other day. Palestinians and Israelis are waging a tragic and brutal war again. Unforgiven grievances continue across the globe, and there is violent revenge that pops up here, there, and everywhere. People run every day from God and toward all manner of idols. Good is often defeated while evil has success. People dump pollution uncaringly and excessively into our oceans and into our rivers. A person fakes affection toward his neighbor, but inside is seething against her. There is a long history of tyrannous, brutal regimes and governments on this earth. 
There is infidelity in marriages, and there is war between nations, and there is betrayal, and there is hatred between neighbors. We human beings, we are addicted not only to alcohol, drugs, and sex, but we are addicted to being right. Or we are addicted to work. Or we are addicted to appearing competent. Or we are addicted to exercise and physical image. Or we are addicted to money. Or we are addicted to appearing super spiritual. Or we are addicted to the praise of others. Or we are addicted to our dream of how we think things should be with other people while we totally miss out on what's really there actually in the present. We are addicted to any number of things. Friends, we, each and every one of us, we are all broken and we live within a broken environment. If we live a while in this environment called the world, our experience will include shocks, will include disappointments, will include sorrows, will include evaporated dreams. And all the while, we are experiencing physical decay, and eventually we will die. This place is busted. And while there is much about life in this world that is right, that is beautiful, that is good, like falling in love, and like the music of J.S. Bach and hiking in the mountains, fiery sunsets, laughter, friendship, the taste of chocolate, the taste of coffee at 6.30 a.m., the taste of barbecue. While there is plenty about this life that is good and right and beautiful, and while it is very true that God right now is maintaining and upholding his good creation despite how human sin has ravaged it, while all of that is true, nevertheless, we must reckon, as believing people, we must reckon very soberly and very seriously with the fact that we as human beings do find ourselves in a very broken environment. We are broken ourselves within that environment, and it's a broken environment which has come about how? It has come about as a result of our voluntary descent into mutiny against God. And this broken environment, linked as it is to human sin, listen, it will not be put right again. It will not be put right again in any final, lasting way, by any single mortal sinner or by any group of mortal sinners. 
That cosmic job of putting right the world lastingly and finally, that cosmic job is outside of human domain. That job belongs to God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 describes the whole creation as subjected, listen to the language, the whole creation that we inhabit is subjected to futility. And that word futility in the original Greek is exactly the same word that we find in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes, the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes that the apostles were using as they wrote the New Testament. It translates myriad times as vanity or absurdity or futility in Ecclesiastes. It's the Greek stand-in for the Hebrew hevel, Abel. So Paul says that the whole creation was subjected to hevel, to vanity, to absurdity, to futility. Paul there is echoing Ecclesiastes in Romans 8, verse 20. And this subjection to futility that Paul talks about, when did it happen? It happened, friends, at the moment in Genesis chapter 3 when God cursed the creation. Why? Because of Adam's sin. Paul goes on in the same passage of Romans to describe the whole creation as needing, listen to the language, the whole creation needs to be set free from its, what? Bondage, its enslavement to corruption. He says further that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of of childbirth until now. Commenting on that 22nd verse of Romans 8 where Paul writes of creation's groaning, Albert Wolters writes this. He says, the effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. He says, whether we look at societal structures such as state or family or cultural pursuits such as art or technology or bodily functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of human mutiny against God, close quote. We're trying to get real here this morning concerning the state of our world and our human inability, inability to make sweeping, lasting, universal changes to it. Well, pastor, what about progress amongst the human community? Is progress not possible for us? Can we not collectively pull ourselves up to a higher level 
of understanding, to a greater level of compassion for one another, and a universal unity. I mean, we've certainly made progress in science, haven't we, during the course of this pandemic, rolling out effective vaccines in record time. And we've made progress in providing education to way more people across the globe than was the case 100 years ago. And we've made progress in computer technology, have we not? And in electric cars. Is progress impossible? And I suppose my answer to that question would be this. Amidst all of that technological scientific progress, which is real progress that has been made, amidst all of it though, can you point to any real progress in the human psyche itself? We're only 21 years into this new century. The question I would have did, is this, did the century that we've just come through, did it, did it show progress in us when 108 million people died in wars over the course of that century. You might call me a pessimist if you like, but I, for one, hold no hope in human progress as a viable answer to our human condition. I'm with D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who once preached the Bible holds no hope whatsoever for the idea that as the centuries pass, things will get better, that man and his environment will improve, and that at last he will arrive at a state of perfection. Lloyd-Jones said, as for Scripture, the optimistic idea that things are going to advance and develop is quite foreign to its teaching, quite foreign to its teaching. Friends, we've been laboring like this to show the truly broken condition of our world through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of the Christian worldview, in order to point out that anyone who pretends to be able to balance the ledgers now within this life, under the sun, in this fallen atmosphere of ours. Anyone who purports to be able to write what is profoundly upside down in this world, that person is simply in way over their heads. They are actually usurping the role of God or they are trying to do that. God is the only one. Listen. God is the only one with the power and the wisdom and the righteousness and the authority and the justice and the ability to finally and fully right what is wrong with this world, to recreate a world that has gone very wrong. And so there is an immodesty and there is a hubris about ideological social justice. It fails to reckon seriously with the human condition, and it overestimates human ability 
and it widens the parameter of human enterprise, what we think we can do, it widens it to a wideness that oversteps and overreaches into God's domain. So, what then? Do we all just sit back and let things unfold and stop altogether working for justice in this world, seeing the world as hopelessly, helplessly ensnared in the effects of sin? Is that what we do? Of course not. In fact, as God's people, we are commanded, aren't we, to be doers of justice, but as kingdom people, we go about the work of justice in a very different way. We approach the work of justice with much more modesty and with much more humility. We recognize that our efforts at social improvement, while they are good and while they are necessary, our efforts at social improvement are not finally going to bring about paradise on earth. We know that as we take into account the widespread and devastating effects of human sin. We are theological realists as kingdom people about ourselves and our abilities and about the world around us. For us, something called forgiveness, have you heard of forgiveness? Something called forgiveness is also infused into the mix which is something that is absent from ideological social justice. So listen, as a Christian, if I work with my neighbor to make a better world, and some offense happens between us, which it probably will, then I practice forgiveness. I do the hard work of forgiveness. Or if I am the one who is offended, I humble myself under the Lord and I do the hard work and I go and I seek forgiveness. We're going to talk more about forgiveness in coming weeks. And all the while, as I work as a Christian for social improvement in this broken world, I am waiting and I am praying all the while, waiting and praying in earnest for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord, and for the final and the full renewal and writing of all things that he is bringing. And so we approach this whole area of social justice in a very different way. Early on this morning, we spent a little bit of time in Ecclesiastes as we work now toward a close. In Ecclesiastes, the main speaker, Kohelet, identifies we heard him identify certain hard truths about our experience in this life. He names those dissonances of this life where the righteous get what should come to the wicked while the wicked get what, what should come to the righteous. In Ecclesiastes 1.15, Kohelet reflects on the crookedness. He uses that word, the crookedness of our existence, the out-of-jointness it's a crookedness that none of us is able to make straight, he says. In 6.13, Kohelet declares that no mortal person really seems to know 
what's good for us while we live on this earth. Who really knows what's good for us in terms of mortal human beings? In the midst of his realism about our experience, in the midst of his long speech, every once in a while, Kohelet expresses some confidence that there will be a reckoning. At some future point from his day, a reckoning where God will exercise divine judgment over human affairs. For example, at 3.17, Kohelet is confident there that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked person. God will do that. At 11.9, he's likewise sure that God will exercise judgment. Friends, though we live in a world where there is no perfect justice, God will one day pronounce his final perfect judgment on all things. And so Ecclesiastes ends with what might be the most important two verses in the entire book, chapter 12, verse 13, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. By this point, we've heard Kohelet's long speech. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, at the end of that passage, we have another promise, don't we, of a coming reckoning for all human deeds. And so in the meantime, what's our role? Our role as human beings while we live on this earth is as it says there, to fear God and to keep his commandments. Well, you and I have not only Ecclesiastes, but we have the entire Bible. And what the Bible reveals is that God, not content to leave his creation in a state of devastation and groaning, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to begin the inaugural work of setting things straight, of straightening what is crooked and bent in our world. He sent his own son to die as the suffering servant, to rescue us from our bondage. Consider this, friends. What happened when Jesus appeared on the earth? What happened was that in all humility, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, willingly and lovingly stepped right into the hevel, right into the futility, right into the groaning of our existence, right into the bondage to decay that is our experience. The Son of God took on flesh. He stepped into what Paul Griffiths has called the devastation. The Son of God stepped into this broken world in order to begin the work of righting the world. Jesus came into the futility to do what? To rescue us. And how did he rescue us? By himself encountering the ultimate absurdity. Namely, to be put on the debt 
put on the cross to death as the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. Absurd. But oh, how mighty, how glorious, how liberating, how necessary and how powerful is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Friends, Jesus is the rescuer of this world. Jesus is the one who writes what is wrong with this place. The broken world needs divine rescue. It needs divine repair. It needs divine renewal. And it's in Jesus that we find it. Turn to Jesus. Hide your life in his life. Love God and love your neighbor. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your revelation, which when we really peer at it and ingest it and hear it, it's not very flattering toward us as human beings, Lord, in many ways, but we recognize the extravagance of your love for us, the fact that in Jesus Christ you went on this mind-blowing rescue mission to rescue us, to adopt us into your family, to forgive us and cleanse us of our sin. Lord, it is truly a remarkable thing. And I pray, Lord, that as kingdom people this week in whatever corner of the world you have us occupying, that we would modestly and in humility go forward and live out the gospel, tell of the kingdom and of the king of the kingdom to starving people who need to hear the word of the gospel. Give us power and give us courage this week, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.